Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career connecting forward-thinking leaders to the growing FinHealth movement. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Discover how these visionaries are challenging the status quo and improving financial health for their customers, employees, and communities. My guest today, Abby Wamimo, is the co-founder and CEO of Isusu, a fintech company that uses rental payments to help individuals boost or build their credit score. From Wall Street to Main Street, Abby has been on a journey to expand equity within the financial system by challenging the notion that where you are from determines your worth. His passion is rooted in the immigrant experience and the challenges he and his mother faced in building a financial identity as credit invisibles. Over time, he's come to realize that his experience mirrors that of other marginalized communities, and he's now focused on unlocking access for all. Abby, welcome to Emerge Everywhere. Thank you a lot for having me, Jennifer. Incredibly excited to be here with you. Abby, we go back a long way. I mean, it's got to be maybe eight years uh, from the very beginning of your journey with Isusu. Uh, and I think today, Isusu is getting a lot of attention uh, for its solution to help people build credit through their rental payments. But that's not where you started the journey. That's not what you were doing when I first met you. Um, tell me a little bit about the evolution of Isusu. Where did it start? Yeah, thanks a lot, Jennifer. Yes, absolutely. We've known each other for quite a long time now. Um, I think we met sequel to my graduate school experience at you know New York University. So the theology of Isuzu really started um, by my co-founder and I, Samir, trying to get a group of people to save in a collective using the oldest form of banking, which is rotational savings and some individual savings. And, you know, what we found out that, you know, that the regular statistics is, you know, a lot of people in this country have less than $400 in their bank account. And we wanted to make sure particularly low to medium income people had the opportunity to save as a collective because that increased their ability um, to save. What we found out was people were just not getting paid enough to put sets, to put money aside. And savings is really, really hard if you don't have enough cash flow, especially if you're spending a large chunk of your amount on certain fixed expenses. So it's just started as a savings business. Um, and, and, then, and I think that's where the name of the company came from, right? Because um, Isusu is, a, if I'm not mistaken, it's a Yoruba word, right? For precisely. rotational savings? Precisely. It's a Yoruba word for rotational savings, um, you know, where folks come together. And it also stands for something bigger because of the collectivist nature, which is if you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you fundamentally go together because, you know, our futures are essentially tied together. But that's the concept of rotational savings in the Yoruba West African culture. Got it. And so after that, uh, you, not people, it was tr challenging for them to save. So then what? It's challenging for them to save. So we went back actually and asked you know, the, the tens of thousands of people we had on our platform, that why aren't you saving um, as fast and with the, the, the velocity we thought um, when we created this company? And the feedback was, we're not getting paid enough. What we need is actually leverage and something that's 
prohibiting that leverages their credit scores. For immigrants, they either they rather lacked a, a credit score in the American system, or for the 70 million people in this country, have what we call a thin file, which means they don't have enough information on their credit profile. So that was the challenge posed to us in terms of how can you give us more leverage to get access to cheap debt, which is fundamentally what this country was built on. And then by doing that, we can lend at a better interest rate, not a draconian interest rate, like a 400% interest rate from other predatory lenders. So that was the inspiration. We took the feedback and created this product, which essentially does rent reporting to help people establish or build their credit scores. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about how it works. If, if I'm an individual renter, can I sign up? Or is this something that uh, you need to sign up the landlord first before tenants, if you will, can subscribe? Yes. The way it works is Isuzu predominantly works with large property managers and asset managers. So landlords and property managers to capture the rental data because it's just more efficient in that way and we can verify the information, transform it in accordance with over 4,000 rules and regulation, including the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the Privacy Act, and other rules and regulation, and then report it in an acceptable language the credit rating agencies accept. And that data is then reflected in the consumer's um, credit profile. So that's essentially how it works. But to your question, we work predominantly with large landlords and their property managers. So here's what I don't understand. Your company, Asuso, we're really proud to have you as part of our Financial Solutions Lab Accelerator. Um, But at the Financial Health Network, we have been investing in similar solutions for over a decade. So the, 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 the credit bureaus have started accepting this kind of data Quite some time ago, we invested in one of the very first companies that made that so. And they've made a lot of progress um, with their own systems. But still, we don't see rental reporting as standard and ubiquitous. Why is that? Why do we still need folks like you pushing this issue? It's a, it's a good question. I think we need to go back down on a little down memory lane to understand why this is not this is an issue. I think it's also woven into our our own story. So I think one of the important things I like to share and my co-founder also is to just tell you the reason why we started the company in the first place and the steps we've taken to make sure we are able to drive the policy decisions from Congress and drive it through execution at scale because that's really what matters here. So from a story standpoint, I think one thing I'm really passionate about is where I come from. I grew up in the slums of Lagos, Nigeria. I was raised by my mother and two feisty sisters. One thing my mother fundamentally believed in was the importance of education. She afforded my school fees to one of the finest high schools in the land. And although I had the opportunity to, you know, go to class with the president's kids or the, the, the minister's kids, you know, the destitution of my social position did not necessarily limit my imagination. So when everyone was essentially taking the SATs, I jumped on the bandwagon, took the SATs and passed and got an admission to the University of Minnesota. So I immigrated from 80 degree weather in Lagos to negative 20 degrees in Minnesota. But here's where, you know, my experience and my mother's experience, you know, sort of clashed. You know, when we 
um, assimilated to the, to the American financial system. When we made that leap, you know, particularly myself, I didn't have a credit score. Uh, we walked into one of the largest financial institutions to borrow money. We were turned away and had to go borrow money from a payday loan lender at over 400% interest rate. In addition to that, my mother pawned my father's wedding ring and a bunch of other jewelry, and that's how we got started in the United States. So really inspired by that experience and my co-founders, we started the company on three core premises. Where you come from, the color of your skin, and particularly your financial identity shouldn't determine where you end up in this country. The reason why that context is important is because it is very, very, in our opinion, it's important for you to feel the issue Right. And that's what fuels you every day. So your question about, you know, why haven't we seen a lot of movement in, in this particular space of capturing rent reporting is a system is set up to essentially capture debt obligation, right? Not run rate obligation. Right. So your debt obligation is you need to go into debt and that data is being reported to either establish or build a credit identity. The golden question, however, is what happens if you don't actually have the ability to participate in getting the debt in the first place? Precisely what happened to my mother and I, where our only alternative was to go get a payday loan, right? So the system treats you like you're guilty until proven innocent. Mm -hmm. You get a credit, and then you have to contribute towards it to essentially prove a point, which doesn't make any sense. So to that end, Congress passed you know, a policy for alternative data, which rents and utilities were bucketed. But what happened was there's a difference between policy and execution. So when, when Congress passed that um, policy, there are a lot of business to consumer um, activities going on in the marketplace. People wanted to capture rental data from individual residents and report it into the credit rating agencies. The credit rating agencies like to deal in an institutional manner because of the complex rules and regulation. So what we decided to do at ASUSU is make it our core focus to capture this data at scale from the property management system of record, transform it and report it in the acceptable format. So all stakeholders are satisfied. The landlords do not do any work because we serve as their agents. The, 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 the policymakers and the regulators are happy because we want to follow the letter and the spirit of the law. And then the credit rating agencies are happy because we're furnishing correct information into them. That was the bottleneck in terms of having a platform that can get that done, not just a unique product that deals with individual consumers. I see. And I've got to believe one of the biggest challenges is the fragmented nature of the rental housing market. You've got, you know, some very large property owners and managers, but they still only account for a relatively small percentage of the overall stock. I mean, I think about my experience back in the day at Shorebank, where right. we made loans to small uh, you know, people who owned a 16 unit building or just a six flat, you know, here in right. Chicago. Um, how are you planning to address that? Yeah, you bring up a very, very big challenge, which is, you know, the real estate market, you know, 30 plus trillion dollars um, is really fragmented. Multifamily, albeit big, you know, does not account for the entire universe um, of housing, particularly rental housing. 109 million people rent um, in this country, and annual run rates of that rent to roughly $1.6 trillion. So it's a lot of money, but very fragmented. 
our approach was very simple. It's leveraging the Pareto principle. How can we capture 80% of the market with 20% of the effort? And the way we do that is connect our technology with the largest property management software platforms. So you think about you know, the Yardis, the RealPage, the Entradas, and then small landlords also leverage things like Appfolio and other small property management software platforms. And what we spent the last three years doing is what we call building the plumbing, right? Connecting to all these large property management software platforms and the small ones so we can have a one-to-many channel, right? So if we go to a landlord, you don't have to do any work. We already have the APIs built in. All you do is ratify an agreement and we can help you and your residents report this data into the credit rating agencies. So that tail, you know, the, the, the way to essentially address it, especially with the huge shift to technology, is capture the data from how they are getting paid, right? And then go to the small business, let's go to the small landlords and say, hey, I'm already integrated. You don't have to do additional work. And the data flows seamlessly. So that's one of the strategies we've leveraged that's paying a lot of due, um, a lot of um, sort of good dividends for us. Be that as it may, there's a lot of work to be done on this um, sort of vertical. The presidents came up with a mandate in January of this year saying rental data should be incorporated, no questions asked in, in residents' financial identity. And the, the government's agencies are coming up with mechanism. So we're really, really excited about the regulatory headwinds we're getting, which would help continue to capture this data at scale. But at this point, you know, what we're focused on is the one-to-many channel, focusing on the accounting system that can help us capture this data at scale. Got it. That makes sense. So um, this is an incredibly challenging time, I must imagine, to be working in the rental housing market because as uh, we all know, there's not enough of it and what is there is too expensive. People can't afford it. Um, and particularly uh, with the pandemic, uh, you know, lots of people uh, benefited from rent moratoriums, although they were unevenly applied. And now those moratoria are coming to an end. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what you've been seeing on the ground, given that you've been working so closely with actual renters and their landlords um, and what Isusu has been doing to be part of the solution. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. I, you know, we are facing one of the greatest health crisis of our time, um, and then the financial crisis to come with that, thanks to certain government um, policies and initiatives, um, where we've essentially um, averted, at least for now. So what we are seeing on the ground is majority of households, particularly low to medium income, special emphasis on African-American households, Latino households are struggling to pay rent. You know, the last time we checked on our platform, there were close to, you know, 42% um, of folks that can't afford to pay um, their rent on time. Mm. This is pronounced because we work with predominantly low to medium income folks, um, given the construct of the folks who report rental data into the credit rating agencies for. Number two, from a financial standpoint, our application have essentially captured close to $119 million in requests. Um, for folks that essentially said, Isusu, can you help us with, um, you know, some kind of rent relief? So given this backdrop, last year, prior to the government essentially deploying 
um, rent relief initiatives, we started and said, look, we need to have zero interest loans provided to folks that can't afford to pay rent because the bare minimum of what we can do is to keep people in their homes, which serendipitously is ASUS's mission. And our vision is to leverage data to bridge the racial wealth gap. So we felt as though we had a duty to stand um, with, with folks. So we, we rolled out a zero interest loan program that essentially is a 15 month term loan whereby we capture philanthropic dollars from large institutions that usually fund homelessness. And our argument to them is we should not stop homelessness backwards when people are already on the streets. Let's use some of that capital to actually keep them in their homes but it's a revolving pool of capital when they pay back. And we've been doing that for close to 16 months now, um, and the program has been incredibly successful. Prior to that program, ASUS's landlord had coverage of over a quarter million rental units. Now it's you know, 2 million rental units in 50 states. Mm -hmm. So by doing good and keeping families in their home, it's also been accretive to ASUS's growth um, and then uh, our performance also. I think during this last 18 months, uh, we've seen a lot of relief programs, whether for rent or other kinds of needs, really in the form of cash, right? Here's some money. Um, right. You intentionally did not, uh, did not design this in that way. You designed right. it as a loan, albeit interest-free. Uh, right. Talk to me a little bit more about the decision to go that route and also if someone can't afford to pay their rent, are they really able to even make payments against the interest-free loan that you've made them to hold them over? That's a fantastic question. So we decided to go this route um, by offering what we call a zero-interest loan program. And if folks can afford to pay, we'll work with them on a long-term payment plan. The, 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 the argument from, from others is if you offer free cash, you're disincentivizing folks to participate in the economy. And we looked at that, you know, from the onset. We didn't want that rhetoric, especially being a venture-backed business. We had to come up with something that's not mutually exclusive, but it's a win-win solution for everyone involved. So the way we constructed our program is simple. We engage with our landlord um, partners. The last thing they want is for them to pay us, right? And we are not accretive to their bottom line. So the way we constructed the program was actually strategic. We offer a zero interest loan to the residents. And once they go through the process, we pay the landlord directly. So we can verify to those philanthropic partners we promised, we're going to use that capital to keep people in their homes. If we give them the cash, right? You know, they can use it to make other obligation, which is great. But the promise we had to our philanthropic partners and other capital providers was we're going to leverage this capital to keep people in their homes. So that's one of the decisions to essentially structure this program this way. Number two, you have to also understand that prior to the pandemic, we're a cost item on the balance, on the PNL um, of our partners, of our landlord partners. But now there's actually an accretive value because mm -hmm. instead of going through an eviction process or being cash strapped, on a particular residence not being able to pay their rent, ISUSU is now standing there and giving them a zero interest loan. And if you think about the mechanics of how we do this, it's a 15 month term loan. Three months is essentially an moratorium, and they pay on equal installments for the next 12 months. So what we're doing is giving them that first three months to get back on their feet, right? Provide them with a lot of resources, social services within their zip code, job train, workforce, we refer them to all those resources. So it becomes a collective 
not just what ASUSU is providing. Furthermore, if they can't pay, we're not taking them to collections. We're working with them and saying, what kind of payment schedule works for you? But what we want to do is get people in the habit of making obligations because when we help them establish and build their credit scores outside of the walls of ASUSU, right? If you have other loan obligations, we need to pay it back. So that's the habits we wanted to foster, hence why we constructed the program in this way. So I know there's the argument of just give them cash and then they'll do what they need to do with it. Um, but given the, the construction of the capital, we have we want to verify we kept people in their home, establish and build their credits, and then can help them pave that permanent path to some kind of financial stability. Understood. So maybe this is a pre-pandemic question, although maybe maybe the pandemic doesn't really matter. Um, Do you find that most of the renters you end up working with um, just have poor credit or no credit? Because those are two different things. Um, And I know that ISUSU in particular, given your personal history, um, you know, have a real passion around the credit invisible. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about sort of how that breaks out and who you're working with and whether you see differences in either their behavior or in the benefit that the credit report, the rental reporting has on their credit score. Yeah, thanks a lot for that question. So if we look at the demographic we work with, uh, this demographic, the system, I've treated them that like guilty until proven innocence in the first place. So they are forced engagement to the financial system as either I pay loan or they have high interest debts because they had a poor credit score to start off with. So to answer your question, 70% of the folks we work with have very, very low credit scores, you know, sub 600, below 600. And what we are able to do is report 24 months of historical rental payments provided they pay on time to help boost that credit scores. And if they don't have that credit score for that 30%, right, we can help them establish it for the first time. So that's the power of what we do. And then as it relates to the financial product, it is one thing to help establish or build someone's financial identity. It's also important to let them know, hey, this is what you can do with it. So when it, as it comes, as it relates to this, we're also thinking about what are all the what are the low interest capital providers that we can pair them up with so they don't fall in the hands of the draconian providers of, um, of, of loan capital. We think this is important because we if we go down memory lane, this country we reside in was built on cheap debt, right? We can talk about the construct of slavery in and of itself, mm-hmm. right? The big debts there. You can talk about reconstruction, you know, the wealth reversal. And you can talk about, you know, in the 1930s under Franklin Delano Roosevelt's, you know, New Deal, whereby the Federal Housing Authority did not back the mortgages of you know, African-Americans and other people of color and did that with the full faith of the federal government for mostly white households, right? Those GI Bill, you know, those uh, veterans that came back and other white families during that time have essentially seen a huge benefit um, from having having sort of big accretive value in their homes. And when we think about the racial wealth gap in our country today, the average white family has 10 times as much wealth than the average black family. 76% 76% of that composition is home ownership. So as we think about what we are building at ASUSU is, look, the system is what it is. How do we help folks establish or build their credit scores so at least 
they can get access to financial product as a cheaper rate. The cost of capital is not prohibitively expensive for them. So that's the dynamic of what we're focused on. We're doing that in a more automated way, not in a nomothetic approach, not a one-size-fits-all approach, rather an ideographic approach whereby we're taking into context what's going on in their life and paying them up with the right financial products. Got it. You know, you speak about the history of racism in this country, history of slavery in this country, um, more eloquently and more knowledgeably than many people who were born in this country. Uh, and I wonder if you might reflect a little bit on the experiences that you've had as an African immigrant to this country and how those are similar or different to challenges faced by um, Black people in the United States who were born in this country? And how has that played out for you as an entrepreneur, you know, seeking your own capital to start your own business? Yeah, thanks a lot for that question. So the, the journey is somewhat similar. And I would actually say tough, particularly as you think about the African continent. From where I'm from in Lagos, Nigeria, your father's last name determines the kind of loan capital you can get um, to essentially move forward. You know, my mother had to sacrifice 60% of her salary to afford my school fees to one of the best high schools in the land to give me an opportunity and have this dialogue today, right? Coming to the United States, you know, there's a lot of historical context. And I believe I stand on the shoulders of many people that have sacrificed a lot, African-Americans, for us to do what we are doing today, right? So, but the journey, if you look at it, you know, is almost the same. If I'm walking down the streets in Brooklyn or south side of Chicago, you know, the police is not going to say, hey, you sound African or you're African-American. I'm black, right? You know, you call it spade a spade, right? And we're going to be treated the same way. So although I have an African background, coming to the United States, what really matters and what joins us together is our inextricably Black experience in this country, right? Which is one of marginalization. And then if you understand the history, right, it helps you bring things into context. But what I'm particularly focused on for my entrepreneurial journey and in our team at Isusu is how do we move beyond the rhetoric, right? And how do we bring things to action to actually have an impact on people's lives? And that's what the construction of Isusu in and of itself. You know, the journey we are focused on is, look, we understand the historical context. And I'm notorious for saying Martin Luther King had a dream. Guess what, at Isusu, we have a plan, right? The plan is simple. Folks have been left behind predominantly. We have a capitalist system, in my opinion, that is a mansion built on a sinking sand. We need to list it with a little bit of justice. We need to have a renewed sense of capitalism, which we call justice capitalism, one that's more fair, equal, and just for a lot of people that have been left behind, particularly African-Americans. One way we can do that is, look, we talked about and established the fact that cheap debt essentially builds America. Let's establish and build people's credit scores. If they can't afford to put a roof over their head, let's give them zero interest loans. It's no different to what we did in the 30s for white families, right? And once we help them give them zero interest loans and stabilize them, the next step is, guess what? They have a good credit. They have a good roof over their head. They can get a credit card at a cheaper interest rate. We live in a good neighborhood when they're thinking about a mortgage. And now we can think about wealth once they have homes and other assets like insurance. That's the evolution we're really focused on at Isusu. 
but it takes a shift and a mindset from just the current capitalist system whereby the Gini coefficient is unsustainable, but one that continues to see everyone as fair, equal, and just. So that's, the, that's what we are trying to deal with, a strict juxtaposition of the current state, not casting stones at it, but laying the foundation you know, and listening it with a little bit of justice and asking ourselves, how can we make it better? So how did you get to this point? Because certainly you have the experience, the immigrant experience, uh, experience of growing up in the place and in the manner that you did, but you also spent a bunch of time on Wall Street uh, <laughs> here in America. So in a way, it feels like you're coming full. But tell me more about how you got from Wall Street to you know, really being a significant proponent for a kinder, gentler capitalism and for justice. Absolutely. So my journey didn't necessarily start in Wall Street. When I came to the United States and I started in Minnesota, my first job was working for President, President Obama's re-election campaign in the northwestern region of Minnesota. Incredibly white, you know, walk to people's doors and say, <laughs> hey, let's vote for President Obama. And, you know, you have folks with Confederate flags outside. You know, that guy. Yeah, you know, I learned a lot about myself. I had a lot of no's and it helped me during my entrepreneurial journey because, you know, I had 300 no's during the VC process, but that is not a reflection of me or the idea we're building. It just needs a little bit of tweaking to make it more perfect and something people can embrace. It made my skin thicker and understand why people do what they do. Mm -hmm. Just because they don't agree with my perspective doesn't make them bad which is kind of the status quo we have in this country today. The left is not trying to talk to the right. No one is listening to each other. But we're one big American family. We're all the same. We all want to wake up, talk our kids in at night, make sure they have a better life than we did. That's what everyone wants at the end of the day. So going back to my journey, you know, I started my career looking at that lens. And then, you know, did business in undergrad and then went to graduate school for development finance. I thought I was going to go work at the United Nations. Mm. But what I keep hearing was the private sector plays a quintessential role in sustainable development. So that led me to go work at Goldman Sachs, did mergers and acquisition at PricewaterhouseCoopers, did deals at over $50 billion on the buy side and the sell side. So... Having both perspective, I had seen what governments looked like. I'd seen what the private sector looked like. No one could tell me that I don't understand how both sides play. And that knowledge essentially helps create this perspective. How do you create a win-win solution for society? How do you create products that, you know, has a lot of good, but can also outperform from a range standpoint? Because I do not believe they are mutually exclusive. And that's how the idea of justice capitalism came into place. My justice background, you know, being a campaign staffer, knocking on doors, that is justice, fighting to make sure folks can have a fighting chance every day. And then looking at the capitalistic mindset, you can say whatever you want to say about capitalism, but it's one of the most successful constructs of markets in the world, point blank period. Well, how do we mesh both of them together to make sure, you know, people are getting a fair deal, people are living in a more just world, and feel like they are being included. And that's really the inspiration here. So, you know, the idea of working on Wall Street, which is not a bad thing, but my experience working in, in public service also is essentially what gave birth to Isuzu with my co-founder and I to make sure everyone has a fighting chance and hold strictly to our vision to leverage data to bridge the racial wealth gap. Abby, I think that's a great place to leave our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on Emerge Everywhere. 
thanks a lot, Jennifer. I really appreciate you having us and keep up the good work and hopefully we have more justice capitalists like yourself. Onward. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. If you like the show, please help spread the financial health message by leaving a review. And if you have ideas for future guests or thoughts on the show, please click on the link in the show notes to connect with us. See you next time.